Welcome again to the Arlington Baptist Podcast. I appreciate you again joining me for an ongoing study of God's Word. Nothing more important, precious, valuable in our lives than to open up God's Word and read it and study it. And that's what we try to do here at our church and do on our podcast on a pretty regular basis. Now, I do series on subjects and and uh, have guests at times, but it's always centered around the Word of God. It's always centered around the Bible and, and Christianity and the truth. So we are studying the great book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. We've been studying it for some time now. I haven't looked back to exactly the date when we began it for a while, but I know it was in, in the last year, at least maybe at the end of last year. And we're not too far from being done. We're in chapter 20 today. We're going to start a new chapter. Only three chapters to go, but there is a lot in these last three chapters. So I always uh, hesitate to act like we're almost done because it's liable to take us four, five, six more podcasts to finish up because there's just so much uh, to teach on and to discuss So we finished chapter 19 last week in the podcast, and I told you chapter 19 is a very transitional, pivotal chapter. It takes us really from the time of the tribulation period, the seven-year tribulation period that we've been discussing. Remember, this is a premillennial, pre-tribulational view of end-time events. I know it's not the only one. There's other good people that believe other things about prophecy. I simply, as a pastor and one who's dedicated myself to study and teach and preach the Word of God, have come to the conclusion that the pre-tribulational, pre-millennial view uh, of prophecy is the most consistent with all the Scripture when it's brought together. Now, no one, no matter what their position is, post-tribulational, post-millennial, amillennial, replacement theology, uh, pre-millennial, of course, None of us will be able to answer every question of every verse, every statement made. Uh, we all have to look at prophecy as a, a very difficult doctrine in some ways. Yes, there are a few gray areas, some things that we're not going to be sure of until we actually are there and a part of it and, and, and see it firsthand and are, are involved and experience its, uh, uh, its carrying out, if you will, but I think there's enough said in Scripture to get a basic uh, structure of prophecy or end-time events. And so uh, upon that structure, I've been teaching from this view. And because of that, we could say that really chapters 4 through 18 of Revelation occur uh, during the seven-year tribulation that is still yet in the future. The first couple chapters are the church age and the seven churches that Jesus wrote to. But chapters 4 through 18, we're looking at all the events during the seven-year tribulation period. You say, where do we keep talking about the seven years? Well, we get that primarily from Daniel uh, in chapter 9, where Daniel gave an amazing prophecy about the 70 weeks of Israel's history. And he breaks it into 69 weeks with one week left over. And we think that final week of seven years is going to be the tribulation period. And so during the discussions in chapters 4 through 18 of Revelation, we see events in heaven that John sees and events on earth. But then in chapter 19, we see the end of the tribulation with the triumphal, amazing, powerful return of Christ from heaven. Remember it said in chapter 1, verse 7, every eye shall see him. 
Now, that's different than the rapture. The rapture, which is a word that's been used to describe the catching up, the instantaneous catching up of all believers. We went over it rather in some detail, uh, not only back in chapter 4, where we think it is referred to, but in our previous study a while back, maybe a year or two ago now, called Understanding the End. That's a entire study of prophecy, not just one book, but a more panoramic uh, peripheral, uh, or I should say perennial, all-inclusive uh, discussion of end times prophecy. But with that in mind, uh, as we got into chapter 19 and finished it last uh, episode, we saw Jesus returning from heaven uh, on a white horse. Those that are with him on white horses, we think of the saints that had been there with him during the seven years and the judgment seat of Christ had taken place, the marriage supper of the Lamb, on earth is now going to be consummated, but it was, in a sense, the the wedding itself was was brought together during the tribulation where the bride of Christ, which represents his churches, uh, is referred to. And then as he comes back, he destroys all the armies gathered at the Battle of Armageddon. And the, 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 the most uh, important thing he did that we saw at the end of chapter uh, 19 was to cast the beast, or the Antichrist, and his cohort, his companion, uh, the false prophet, into the lake of fire, this horrifying, eternal place of suffering and torment. It's going to be a big part of the remainder of this book for a few chapters. You'll see it brought up several times. Now, as we move into chapter 20, we have one more member of the Satanic Trinity to deal with, and that is Satan himself. Remember, there's Satan uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet that make up what we might call call a counterfeit trinity, a satanic evil trinity. Two of those members have already been dealt with, and they shall not be brought up again, other than they remind us where they already are. But in chapter 20, we see now what happens to Satan. Remember, he was first called Lucifer. He rebelled uh, sometime at or before the creation of uh, of the uh, earth and the universe. We're not sure exactly when, but we know uh, it happened sometime around there. And he was cast out of heaven with a third of the angels that he was able to deceive to follow him in this rebellion. Let's talk about what happens to him. This is good news for all of us who have been waiting and desiring the devil to get his due, to get what's coming to him. This is going to be justice finally carried out. Let's read from chapter 20. In verses 1 through 3. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that he must be loosed or released a little season or for a little while. Now, let's go back and talk about this. It's really amazing, and what we see happening here is so important. Uh, John again sees another angel, and this time this angel has a very important job. Uh, he has a key in his hand, and that key is said to be to the bottomless pit, a key that opens up this horrifying place, uh, and he has a great chain in his hand. Now, Again, we, we, we discuss and debate this literalness of the book of Revelation. Is there a literal bottomless pit? Is this a literal key, a literal chain? Well, again, 
Um, I'm not going to promise in every reference that uh, these uh, descriptions are literal. Uh, however, I am very hesitant uh, and careful not to leave a literal interpretation uh, just because I can't, in my, my own mind, wrap my brain around uh, how these things could be. That is a mistake because I think once we begin to take a allegorical or symbolic interpretation, illustrative interpretation of things, uh, we can simply make the Bible mean or say uh, or be interpreted any way we'd like. So I stay with the literal interpretation unless it clearly shows otherwise. We've seen this bottomless pit already mentioned earlier. Remember those demonic creatures that came out uh, of the bottomless pit earlier? Well, I'm going to stay with believing it is a real bottomless pit. And then this key and the chain that's in the hand of this angel must be literal as well. You say, well, how does he open up the bottomless pit? Is there what kind of padlock is there? Is it a deadbolt? Uh, you know, we can go on and kind of get ridiculous with that. But we could just say that th this is literal. And he opens up the bottomless pit. And he does it for a very important reason. It says he laid hold. <laughs> I like this. You know, it's like the devil's been a fugitive running for justice, and he's finally arrested by the sheriff of heaven, God himself, by his angel. Uh, I don't know what angel this is. We're not going to try to guess, but could be Michael. He was always the warrior angel in other parts of the scripture. But anyway, whoever, whatever the angel is, whoever it is, uh, lays hold on him. And notice the description. God wants you to make sure you don't miss it. He tells us four four descriptions or four titles for him. He's called the dragon. We've seen that. The old serpent. We've seen that. The devil and Satan. We've seen all four of these. But why does God stress them all four together here? Because he doesn't want us to lose sight of who this individual is. He is so vile and evil and wicked. When I think of how evil our world is, when we think of all the heinous uh, just debauchery and, and uh, filthiness and, and just sin so so ungodly that you can't even speak of it. Paul said in Ephesians, it's a shame to even speak of these things that are done in secret. Uh, the devil's behind all those. He getting, he's getting what he deserves, and I rejoice and say amen to it. I'm thankful for this day coming, and I know if you're a true Christian, you're looking forward to this too. This, this is going to be the day we've waited for. We've waited most for the coming of Christ, and it's because he's coming that this event will happen. And the devil is going to be uh, uh, chained, it says, and cast into the bottomless pit and shut him up. I'm skipping over that time period. I want to get to it in a minute. But let me go back to verse 3. <coughs> Excuse me. And he cast the devil into this bottomless pit and shut the door and sealed it and, and, and set a seal upon him, which means upon the, the pit itself that he cannot get out any longer, and notice that he should deceive the nations no more. Wow, that's been his primary job. He is a liar, Jesus said, and the father of lies. He's a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, Jesus said. Remember in John 8, 44? Well, this is, is a, a tremendous uh, blessing to know that one day the devil will no longer deceive the world, the nations, any longer. Think of how many people have been deceived by the devil. Oh, it would take a whole podcast, maybe a series of podcasts, to get into the deceptions that the devil has has uh, 
hurt man with and, and, and tricked man into believing. So many are lost forever. Remember that passage? I've got to go back to it just because it comes to mind along with this one where Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4 about why so many people are lost. By the way, they're not lost because God destined them to be lost. He didn't, he didn't predestinate anybody to hell, and thus we can dispense with that foolish idea of, of uh, unconditional election upon a few and then God damning the rest, which is a Calvinistic lie. Um, but let me show you what has caused many to be lost. Here it is, 2 Corinthians 4, 3. But if our gospel, Paul said, our gospel, the true gospel, be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. And anytime the Bible speaks of, of something being hid, uh, well, let me just at least pre prerequisite that or preface that by saying when the gospel is hid, when the truth is hid. It is not that God's playing hide and seek and trying to hide something from you. God doesn't want his truth to be hidden. He wants us to declare it to the world. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So this would be contrary to God's will for anything to be hid. It's hid because man will not open his heart to it. Man will not believe it. Man allows the devil to blind his eyes. Notice what it says. In whom the God, little g, look at verse 4, not the true God, this is Satan, of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest or unless the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. That, uh, I think, perfectly lays it out back to the deception of the devil, uh, who one day will deceive the nations no more. His greatest deception is to keep people in unbelief, that they die lost in their sins. Now, we have to go back now because it's brought up twice here and it'll be brought up again in uh, several other verses that we uh, go on to study. And that is this thousand years. Now, the thousand years uh, is given the title by Bible prophecy teachers, has been for some time now, the millennium. Now, the, uh, the uh, remember the King James translators, uh, and all translators have to deal with this, uh, realized that there was no um, Greek word for a thousand, uh, and so, or for, uh, I should say, a million, pardon me, uh, as we looked at with the 200 million man army earlier. Uh, but the word translated here is a thousand, a thousand years. And this thousand years is a literal time period. There's no reason to think it's not. Uh, it says that Satan will be. <coughs> bound, excuse me, this cough just always wants to seem to come up right when I'm talking for a while. He'll be bound for a thousand years, and I take that to be literal, and I don't see any reason we shouldn't. It's repeated four times in this text. Uh, in fact, uh, maybe even more than that, I, well, I know there's four uh, times for sure in this 20th chapter, uh, and this is where we get the idea of millennium from the Greek word that is translated really a thousand years because there was no word for a million years. So a thousand years, the millennium, a thousand year period of time where we believe, and I think the Bible would most clearly and consistently teach this, that Jesus will come back and set up his kingdom. I was discuss, discuss, uh, discussing with a good friend of mine here recently at dinner. We uh, had some fellowship with a couple that we love in the Lord, and and he was discussing with me a great point, an important point, uh, how that 
we have this movement today in much of contemporary progressive Christianity about the kingdom. Uh, let's bring in the kingdom. We're working to bring in the kingdom. Uh, we're, not, we're not bringing in the kingdom. Jesus will have to bring in the kingdom. That's an all-millennial view that, or a post-millennial view. Remember the Protestant view, and let me, I don't want to get too far in the weeds on this and too far in the discussion. I did this more on our Understanding the End series, but uh, Protestantism, uh, I think, taught a false eschatology that there would really be no literal reign of Jesus on earth, that they taught a post-millennial or in some cases an all-millennial, there'll be no reign, there'll be no kingdom on earth. The post-millennial view was that the church, by its uh, spreading of the gospel and starting churches and influencing society socially and morally and politically, that we would set up the kingdom, make everything great for Jesus to come back, and then he'd return to an earth already Christianized, you might call it. Well, that is not only a, a bogus belief, but it's been shown clearly to be false. We're not getting better in society. We're getting worse. And I think the apostasy that Jesus and other uh, speakers and writers refer to in the New Testament and the Old can really be brought into that is being proven before our very eyes. We're not in a in a time where churches are going to take over the world and we're going to make a theocracy and Christianity is going to make a great utopian society on earth and Jesus will finally come and enjoy it. No, in fact, we are going the opposite direction. It's going to take Jesus literally coming visibly here for this thousand-year kingdom to be set up on earth. And, and I'm not going to have the time in this, in this podcast on Revelation to go into as much detail as I did in the Understanding the End series where I could take each subject and then show many, many passages and verses that dealt with them. But just believe me when I say there is a lot of documentation scripturally, passages, verses, statements, that will back up the idea that Jesus is coming back to rule over a literal kingdom where he'll reign from Jerusalem, a new temple will be built, the Jews uh, will get to live under their promised Messiah, and we that are saved shall reign with him. We're going to see that in a moment. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but this thousand years is literal. And thankfully, one of the reasons the, the, the thousand year reign of Christ is going to be so great, it's a utopian period. Now, it's not to say there won't be any sin. We've talked about that in our earlier series, but the I think the best way to describe the millennium, which has always helped me, is to see the world kind of in a comparison to how the world is now. You know how the world is now? It's mostly evil with a remnant of Christians and a remnant of goodness happening. Uh, in other words, we could say the majority of the world is wicked and evil and there's a lot of bad things happening, but there's still some good things, uh, a smaller amount, a minority and a remnant, well, let me flip that around and say the millennial kingdom will be really the exact opposite. Then with Christ reigning and ruling with a rod of iron, as we talked about from chapter 19, verse 15, righteousness will be the majority. It'll be the norm, not the exception. Now, there still be sin, and there will be some sinners, mortals that are born that have to be saved, and they'll have sin natures, and they'll carry out sinful things, and that's why we'll see the devil is allowed one more time out of the pit to deceive the world one more time, to give them a choice. And we'll see that in a moment. But nonetheless, this thousand years is real. And he says, back to verse 3, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. See, God's word has got to be fulfilled. Jesus said that heaven and earth may pass away, but my word shall never pass away. 
One jot or one tittle shall no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled, he said in the Sermon on the Mount. And so uh, this is important. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. Well, we're going to get to that. I just referred to it. But the devil will have one last little time. I don't know how long, but a little time at the end of the millennial kingdom to try to deceive those mortal sinners that have not yet been saved and, and those that will be born during that time. Well, let me hold off on that and go to the next passage because we'll see a little bit more about this. Now, this is a fantastic passage about uh, we that will reign with Christ, live with Christ, enjoy this kingdom together. Let me read verses 4 through 6. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, look at plural, thrones, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, the Antichrist, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part of the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. There it is. This reference again two times to the thousand years. Now, I love this passage because for those of us who uh, have loved Christ and tried to serve him, none of us have done it perfectly. No Christian ever does perfectly. But all those of us who have tried to make Jesus uh, Lord of our lives and we've tried to dedicate ourselves to him, uh, you, you wonder if God's been seeing your, your works, your activities. He knows your heart. You wonder if he's keeping a record. He is. He is by far. We see this here. We know he is. Because now he's going to reward the most faithful of his people. And I think they're part of the bride, of course, and they're the closest to him like the apostles were. Hey, this shouldn't seem strange. Do you know that the Lord, while, while everybody that repents and believes on Christ is indeed a Christian, not everybody's going to have the same place in heaven, the same place in the kingdom coming. Just like uh, even in Jesus' earthly uh, life on earth, his first coming. Not everybody had the same access, the same position, the same calling uh, as, as others. The apostles spent more time with Christ than anybody. Three of those 12 even spent even more time than the other, uh, we could say the other nine did, Judas being excluded as a false apostle, but nonetheless. So it, this is not about, you know, we got to have equal rights and, you know, uh, affirmative action, which is kind of a funny thing to talk about since it's been in the news lately. There was no affirmative action in, in, the, uh, in the apostles' uh, calling and in their vocation, and, and there won't be here. Uh, Jesus is going to reward some who have served him the most with thrones. Not everybody will reign. Can you imagine how ridiculous that would be to say every Christian is going to reign with Christ? <laughs> well, there's been millions of Christians. Who are they going to reign over? Well, I think it's going to be those whom Paul even used his statement in 2 Timothy 2, I've already referred to it, I think, in a previous uh, podcast when Paul said, if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. Now, I might add, and it just came to my mind to go ahead and include this because it would help, um, who are we going to reign over as we're reigning with Christ for this thousand years? I'm just taking his words. He literally said that there's going to be thrones, plural, and some will reign with him. Some have... have questioned whether this is just the apostles because of what I'm going to read now. 
I don't think it could be just the apostles, although they're going to have a special place. Let me read it. And back in Matthew 19, remember Peter's question to the Lord, Matthew 19, 27. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? Or what, what, what do we have coming? This seems like such a selfish question on Peter's part. But, but what amazes me is the Lord's answer. He doesn't rebuke or scold Peter. And Peter is stating something very important. He admits that he and the others, uh, all the other apostles, had forsaken everything and followed Christ. And, and in this kind of selfish question, he says, well, you know, what are we going to get out of it, Lord? Look what the Lord says just for the apostles. This is tremendous. He says in the next verse, Verily or truly I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration. Now, follow me in the regeneration is another way really of saying follow me when I came to bring salvation. Regeneration is another word for being brought to life. And that's his first coming. He came to die and save him from their sins. That's the regeneration. But then he uses the word, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory. They're not the same things. The, the uh, following Christ in the regeneration is when the apostles followed him on earth. But now this next part is when he sits on his throne at his second coming in this millennial kingdom. Look what he says to the apostles. Ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Wow. Now, we have to replace... Judas with Matthias, according to Acts 1, so he's not going to be on one of those thrones, but those 12 men, including Matthias is the 12th, they're going to reign over the 12 tribes during this millennial kingdom. So that's who the others, I think, that are on thrones, I do not think it's only the apostles, it would not seem right for Paul to say, if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. If he was only referring to the apostles reigning, that would even make sense. He says it in a general sense to Timothy and the church Timothy's pastoring and all of us uh, Christians in, in, in his churches now that read such a, a, a thought. So anyway, I think it refers to all the faithful Christians and judgment was given unto them. Wow, isn't that amazing? Now, Jesus is the supreme King of kings and Lord of lords. We saw that. And all judgment ultimately comes from him. But he's going to delegate these places of authority. Aren't you glad that the Lord recognizes the most faithful of his servants? And speaking of the most faithful, look what he brings up next. And I don't think these, again, are the only ones that will sit on the thrones. But he mentions them as a as a, an example of true devotion, and that are that is the martyrs again. Oh, I love the martyrs. I always bring up how much they touch my heart. And I saw the souls of them that were to be headed for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. No wonder he brings them up. They are the epitome of people who deserve to reign with Christ. Hey, someone who gave his life for Christ, don't you think he's going to have greater uh, position with Christ, greater blessing and reward than the Christian who didn't do nearly as much with his life, never was willing to pay as, as high a price, was never really as dedicated. Sadly, I have to tell you, I've met many Christians like that over the over the years. I'm not going to even say for sure. I know that there are Christians or not. I have to leave that to God. God knows there's false converts and people are not really saved. But I'll tell you, there's been many a, a really weak and complacent and casual Christian that I've known over the years that hasn't even dedicated themselves to coming to church faithfully, let alone dying for the faith. Of course, the Lord's going to reward them more. 
And it says, in which had not worshipped the beast. We've already read about these kind of people, how dedicated they are during this tribulation. Man, this is, this is thrilling. It's one thing to be dedicated to the Lord now. I mean, I'm not saying it's easy. When you dedicate your life to Christ right now, there's going to be a price to pay. You'll be hated. You'll be uh, let go uh, from positions and you'll be marginalized and, and separated from and people will mock you and, and uh, you will not be the most popular person in, in your family or in your workplace or wherever. But this amount of suffering is even a, to a greater extent. They're doing it during the tribulation period. Imagine serving Christ. This is why they gave their lives. Hey, they stood up for the truth and would not take the mark of the beast. Notice it says, and had not received his mark upon their foreheads and their hands. We've studied all that already. Uh, and then he ends up by saying, this is why they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Wow, that's fantastic. Now, this next verse is important because it's going to get into this idea of different times of resurrection. And they get a little confusing, and I did deal with this in more detail back on the series Understanding the End. So I would, again, I know I might sound like I'm beating a dead horse here, but I might recommend you to go back to that uh, if you want a little bit more filler, a little bit more complete look at these subjects. Uh, but notice verse 5 says, but the rest of the dead. Now, who are the rest of the dead? Well, they've got to be the wicked. They've got to be those who do not go into the kingdom and do not live for a thousand years, let alone reign. They're not even going to be a part of it. It says that the dead live not again. Now, what does it mean live not again? It doesn't mean they were annihilated. We've already settled that question. There is no thing, such thing as annihilation. Nobody, when they die, is annihilated or goes to nothingness, you know, goes to the ether. And there's no, no. everybody that dies either goes to heaven or hell and your soul is eternal. It's an amazing truth that everyone who God creates, every individual who's ever been conceived from the, from the conception of their mother and father is eternal, and their soul will live somewhere. Well, these wicked, that's who this represents, are not resurrected yet. Their souls will remain in the place of the dead, which we know to be hell at this point, but the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. Now, that means their souls remained in hell until the final reckoning. See, we're going to uh, talk about the final reckoning of the saved, which is kind of what we're dealing with now. I've been hinting at the judgment seat of Christ that is somewhat hidden in the book of Revelation because it's really not part of what goes on on earth and uh, so forth. So it may be, that might be part of an explanation why. We do know what happens. Paul goes into it in great detail in 1 Corinthians 3, but we think that's already happened. But now we're talking about this idea of a, of a resurrection for the wicked to be judged. The first resurrection, uh, he calls it, this is the first resurrection. What does he mean? That means this is the resurrection of all the saved who get to now enjoy the kingdom. I, I have to throw in here something that I feel is, is really important. Now, again, this is a gray area, I have to admit. I can't for sure tell you that this is what will happen, but it's just something we have to deal with. How about the Old Testament saints? See, the Lord's people, his family, 
and, and his family consists of all the saved who've ever lived. But since we live in the church age, I'm talking about church age saints, all the family of God since Jesus started his church. He said, I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Remember, all of those in this church age we're living are looked at differently than the Old Testament saints in some respect. We have the Holy Spirit in us, for instance. Uh, we're serving in a different way than they were. We don't have a temple. We don't offer blood sacrifice today. A lot of differences we can call dispensational differences, different time periods of God's dealing with mankind on earth. But this first resurrection is referring to, I think now, all the same, because the second resurrection, if there's a first, then there's going to be a second, that's going to be the resurrection of the wicked who will be resurrected, as we see in the horrifying, terrifying ending to chapter 20. We'll get to maybe next time. We won't today, I'm sure. But we're going to see as they are going to be resurrected at the end of the thousand years for a final reckoning called the Great White Throne Judgment. So back to this first resurrection, notice this is a separate uh, statement by its, its self-contained. He first just says, but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the wicked. Um, but then he says, this is the first resurrection. Well, what he means by that is he's, go he's not referring to the dead there, the wicked. He's going back to talk about the reigning and ruling of, of the saints, of the, of the faithful, uh, of the martyrs, and those who are given judgment. Because he's saying this is part of their first resurrection. They're going to be resurrected to live in the kingdom. So, back to what I just referred to, I think we could say for sure that the Old Testament saints will be resurrected all the way from Adam to the last uh, Jewish person saved before uh, Jesus came to earth and, and the New Testament period was initiated. I think they're going to be resurrected. Of course they have to because the millennial kingdom is really mostly for the Jews. All those passages in the Old Testament that spoke of a utopian beautiful, wonderful, prosperous society uh, on earth. They were all now referring to this kingdom that the Messiah will reign over. That's why I bring in something really important for New Testament interpretation. Why did most of the Jews and even the apostles think Jesus was going to set up his kingdom when he came the first time? Because that's the kind of Messiah they were looking for. They could not see the Messiah coming in two, two, uh, two comings, Two appearances on earth. First coming to die as a sacrificial lamb to save man from their sins. The second as a lion to rule and reign over the earth. And so the first resurrection will be all the saints of the Old Testament, I think, are going to be brought back. Uh, I could refer to maybe a very mysterious event when Jesus rose from the dead. In Mark's gospel, it says some of the Old Testament saints came alive and walked through the city of Jerusalem. Oh, man, that's a very intriguing, gray, kind of mysterious passage. I can't say anything more about it, but I think, it, in my opinion, it's a picture that the Old Testament saints will also be resurrected when Jesus returns. He had just risen the first time. He's going to come back, like, at the second coming, and they're going to be resurrected then. Now, we'll finish for today by looking at verse 6. It's a great verse. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in this first resurrection. Told you, only the saved. On such the second death. Now, we're going to talk about a second resurrection, but more importantly, a second death. And I'm going to hold back my comments on the second death till we get further into the passage at the end of the chapter, because it really nails it and makes it important. 
but they shall be priests of God and of Christ. This is those who are part of the first resurrection. We're going to serve with Christ. We're going to serve as priests. A priest is one who represents God to others. So in part of our reigning with Christ, uh, we're going to represent him to Israel, to mortal people born during that thousand years. By the way, I can't help but mention this great deity reference to Christ. Notice, priest of God and of Christ. If Christ wasn't equal with God, that statement would be contradictory. He is God, and we are priests to God. That would refer to the Father, and of course we could bring in the Spirit, but it's usually referring to the Father, but also of Christ. We're priests with Him too, of Him. And they shall reign with Him a thousand years. There it is again, this wonderful millennial kingdom. Well, we'll stop there at verse 6. We'll pick up next time because we're not done with the millennial kingdom yet and especially what happens right after it. So join us next time as we'll continue in verse 7 of chapter number 20. Remember our motto, conviction for truth, compassion for people. God bless you.